Okay, this morning we're talking about the world as an enemy of the believer. And as I've been starting out with a big, long passage from Scripture each week, I'm going to give you a break from that. I'm not going to do it this week. So we're not going to spend the first three minutes reading uh, an entire chapter of, of Romans. So. Um, so what I don't want to do and what you may have been expecting coming in here talking about the world uh, this morning, or knowing that we're going to talk about the world, is I don't want to make a list of all the worldly influences that you should be avoiding. So, uh, you know, I'm not going to tell you to be careful about watching what you, you know, ha- what you take in on TV. I-, I won't tell you what movies you shouldn't be watching or that you should be careful about the movies. I'm not, not going to tell you about video games and how those might be a problem either, um, or sports or social media. I'm not going to say anything about those things, really, um, ex- except for now. Um, so... But what I do want to talk about is how these uh, things tempt and affect us in our spiritual walk and our sanctification. So rather than talking about them individually or giving you a list of things that you need to be watching out for, uh, we want to talk about the overall picture of how these things affect our spiritual walk and um, maybe give you some foundational context for discernment uh, as we evaluate uh, these types of influences or amusements or entertainments, because really most of that stuff, the reason we take it in is because it's amusements or it's entertainment. It's, it's, more, it's easy to do rather than having to think and actually put in energy and those kind of things, right? So did you guys know that the, the word amuse, it means to not think? So you get A means not or non, and muse is to think. And so when we're taking in these amusements, we are essentially agreeing to not think during that time. It's it's easy, right? And that's why when we're we're worn out, we're tired, we don't feel like doing anything that's worthwhile because that requires energy, we plop down on the couch and we turn on whatever it is that we feel like watching at that moment. But as we study God's Word, we're going to discover that God calls us to be uh, not uh, amused, but to be more like extreme musers, you know, extreme thinkers. We're, we're supposed to be thinking about what we're doing, not just rest. And that's not like rest or relaxation or occasional amusement to recharge is a bad thing. Um, but as we don't want to become a habit or our default, um, then we need to think about what we should be doing biblically. Because the Christian life is not one of a lack of consideration of thought, but one of sound judgment, which we're told over and over again, and discernment. Uh, Mark 12.30, this is Jesus talking, which is a pretty good authority. Uh, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And before I go very much further, uh, I do have a couple of resources to recommend. Uh, Fool's Gold. John MacArthur, um, the subtitle is Discerning Truth in an Age of Air. We're going to uh, see how this is an age of air that we're in right now. And um, this, is, he, this is actually not all John, John MacArthur. It's sort of a compilation, uh, but, and it's an older book, but it's good for evaluating um, lots of different influences. So good stuff. And then uh, this one here, Discerning Truth by Jason Lyle. If you guys aren't familiar with Jason Lyle, he's an astrophysicist or something like that. He's some big science guy. He's got a lot of degrees behind his name. And uh, he works for ICR or Answers to Genesis or something. Uh, But he is huge into logic and critical thinking. And so this book, essentially, it's geared toward the, the subtitle is Exposing Errors in Evolutionary Arguments. 
So essentially it's aimed at evolution because that's sort of his thing. Uh, however, he goes through all different kinds of logical fallacies in here. So you can, and he has uh, examples for you to think through which fallacy is that 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 person is saying. And he also criticizes some of the creation crowd too and says, you can't use that argument because that's fallacy of this. You know? So um, those are both uh, great books. Uh, so back to what we're talking about. Uh, so when Jesus says, with all your mind and with all your strength, uh, when he says, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength, mind here, notice that you know, normally when we talk about the inner man, we talk about what we think and our emotions and the, the way we move, you know, the way we consider things, we're talking about the heart itself. The heart is a general term, generally, for our inner man, meaning how we think, how we feel, that's how we're going to uh, consider what's going on around us, uh, what's going to come out of us, that's going to be from the heart itself. But you notice in, in this passage, or in what Jesus says here, he says, with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. He's specifically calling out the mind, and here, you know, in addition to the heart, which refers to the inner man. So there's more to it than just the inner man part of it. It's, there's something about it that we need to be considering it and using our minds as we love our God. Uh, mind here, that, that term is actually referring more to the intellect and the understanding. The same thing as it is in 1 Peter 1.13, which if you were here when we did 1 Peter, it should sound familiar, but it says, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Remember, we talked a lot about what that means. It means to gird up the loins of your minds. It means get ready to get to work and to think and to get streamlined and put off the distractions and to get so that you can think clearly. So it says, therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We also see it here in 1 Peter 4, 7. The end of all things is near, therefore be of sound judgment. It's not the same word, but the same idea. Therefore be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. <coughs> We're also told in 1 Corinthians 15, 34, become sober-minded as you ought. And when it says as you ought, that means righteously. So we're supposed to be thinking righteously. Becoming sober-minded, and, and the end of that verse is stop sinning, or the end of that first part of that verse. 1 Peter 5, 8, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And of course, that harkens back to what Ron was talking about, about the devil being the enemy of our soul also. So I've got a few quotes here uh, that felt were relevant to thinking this through. Jay Adams, in his Theology of Christian Counseling, says, The world is a different world for the Christian than for the non-Christian. A Christian perspective makes all the difference in how you think about a world of trees and chairs and money and persons. So the believer should be looking at the world in a completely different way than the unbeliever looks at the world. We can look at it's. It's like you hear John Piper say, "You need to drink orange juice to the glory of God." How do you do that? Think through. How do you drink orange juice to the glory of God? Well, we need to be thinking through the daily things that come into our life. How are we going to glorify God in our response to those things? Or how are we going? To, how are those things glorify God or not glorify God as we are going to take them in or not take them in? We need to be evaluating things all the time. Dale Johnson, who's the uh, the head of, the, of ACBC. 
He says, a healthy person is someone who is consistently growing in maturity. It doesn't mean that they're fully mature right now. It means that we are in that process of being conformed to the image of Christ. We're growing in our ability to discern because that's what maturity is. Discern the difference between the deception of the world and the truth that abides in the scripture that God has given us to anchor our soul. So that last line again, discern the difference between the deception of the world and the truth that abides in the scripture that God has given us to anchor our soul. So we need to be able to, remember we talked last week about being trained to discern good and evil because of being in the word and being trained that way, being having practiced those things. So this is what he's talking about. We need to be able to know the word so that we can discern between what the world says, which is deceptive, and what the truth is of God's word. Terry Enns, another uh, biblical counselor writer, he says, in his book, God's Battle for the Man, David Saxton says, perhaps the best advice I could offer someone who desires to become a stable, godly person of meditation is this, turn off the television and fight the temptation to be an entertainment-dominated person. The wholesale surrender of the mind is, is the world's Wait, the wholesale surrender of the mind to the world's programs and amusements led R. Kent Hughes to, to bemoan, this cosmic potential of the believer's mind introduces the great scandal of today's church. And here's, here's the real point. Christians without Christian minds, Christians who do not think Christianly. You know, we can, we can come to church on Sunday, we can hear the word taught in church, we can hear... These, these lessons in here. You can listen to sermons all week long. But if you're not thinking about the day-to-day of what's going on in a Christian way, if you're not thinking about it through the lens of Scripture, then you're, not, you're, not, you're a Christian without a Christian mind. You're a Christian that's not thinking or acting or living Christianly. We have to be aware of what the Word says. The only way it's going to happen is if we're in the Word on a regular basis. And considering it, you know, notice he says there, Perhaps the best advice I could offer someone who desires to become a stable, godly person of meditation is this. If we're going to meditate on God's Word, and if we're going to focus on what His Word says and think about how it applies to our life, which is what meditation is, you're going to, it's not going to be sitting on the floor saying, mm, all, you know, all day. that's not the kind of meditation we're talking about here. We're talking about thinking about God's Word and how it applies to our life. So if we're going to be that kind of a person, we need to be thinking Christianly. Now, I don't normally like to get into Greek terms when I teach. I don't know Greek, and I don't want to give the impression that I know Greek. So that's, that's why I normally don't go there. Um, every once in a while, I'll mention the original word says this or whatever, but uh, I don't go down this road very far because I'm more likely to mess it up than I am to get it right. However, As I was studying for this lesson, I read a bunch of scripture referring to the world or worldly. And as I just looked up Blue Letter Bible and did a search and started reading through all these verses, and I started to notice that as you're reading all these verses that have those words in them, you really start seeing that the ideas are very interchangeable about whether we're talking about the earth as in like the dirt of the earth and what has been created or the earth as in like the world full of sinners. You know, there's there's, there's different ways to think about it, but often as you're reading these verses, it's very hard to discern which one is he talking about. So I sort of went on a search and started looking at the terms to find out if I could find some difference there. 
So listen, just listen to some of these terms. I'll try and go through this quickly. So one word, world equals cosmos. And so this is a couple facets of the definition here. The ungodly multitude, the whole mass of men alienated from God and therefore hostile to the cause of Christ. Next, world affairs, the aggregate of things earthly, or the whole circle of earthly goods, endowments, riches, advantages, pleasures, etc., which, although hollow and frail and fleeting, stir desire, seduce from God, from God, and are obstacles to the cause of Christ. So that's one, one of the terms. Next one, worldly, babelos. And I have no idea how to really say these, so just take it for what, what I say. Uh, in 1 Timothy 4, 7, it's also translated as profane, and in 1 Timothy 1, 9, and, and godless in Hebrews 12, 16. So 1 Timothy 4, 7, 8, you guys are going to recognize this verse, hopefully. Um, in pointing out these things, brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following, but have nothing to do, which means literally means reject, with worldly fables fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. See the, the contrast there. You have nothing to do with worldly fables, meaning nonsense that doesn't, you know, it's not necessarily saying garbage or sinful, or it's just saying it's nonsensical. We don't need to be talking about it. Uh, fables fit only for one. On the other hand, discipline yourself, which requires work and energy to put into. And then in 1 Timothy 1, 8 through 11, but we know that the law is good if, if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and the word, the same word there that's translated worldly is profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers for murderers. So you see a, a, a very uh, stark contrast there, or a stark uh, explanation for the unholy and profane. Included in that would be for those who kill their fathers or mothers for murderers. Hebrews 12, 15, and 16, describing Esau, he says that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau. It's the same term, translated godless. So you see how when we read Scripture and we see these words like world and worldly, and we start, we think, okay, what is it actually referring to here? When you get into other translations of it, you start getting the real feel for what it's talking about. It's talking about profane things and godless things, but it's translated world someplace else. Some other uses of Babylos. Uh, Timothy, guard what has been trusted to you, avoiding worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge. So what the world has to offer so often is empty chatter, opposing arguments. 2 Timothy 2, 14 through 17, uh, actually verse 16, but avoid worldly and empty chatter. Again, it's just empty and there's nothing to it. In Jude, we see these are the ones who cause divisions, worldly-minded, meaning in that sense, they says merely natural. So saying that it's just the natural, it's just the way it is. That's the way we talked about the sinful nature. As men are unsaved, they are living out of their sinful nature, which is their natural way of living. So when we talk about it being a worldly-minded thing, it's going to be according to the sinful nature, because that's their natural way of living. So, uh, one more term, cosmicos, of or belonging to the world, relating to the universe, earthly or worldly. So, this is more the, this is the actual earth. This is the creation that we're talking about. But listen to 
the context of where it's used. In Titus 2, 11 through 14, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing or disciplining us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. So it's using that term that is defined as being belonging to the world or earthly, but it's using it in a context of denying ungodliness and instead, on the other hand, living sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. And so you can clearly see that even though it's talking about the actual earthly part of the world, it's got a context still of saying you want to avoid this type of stuff because it's going to be uh, it's not sensible, it's not righteous, and it's not godly, essentially is what that's saying. So what's the point of reviewing all these biblical terms? Well, in the passages regarding the world, we see an, we see an evident pervasiveness and intertwining of these concepts of the earth itself, of sinful people, and a worldly system of evil that is opposed to God. And we see these things interchangeably. It, doesn't matter, it almost doesn't matter what term's being used. It's being swapped back and forth in the verses to essentially refer to the same thing. The world itself that's full of unbelievers and is a system against God. The physical world or spiritual or philosophical aspects of the world, as in the world culture or the world system, they're so entwined as we look at all these passages. The world, the world is corrupted through and through. Even the created order awaits renewal. We read in Romans 8.22, For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. Of course, we know that this is all due to the fall of man. This is all due to sin. This is all due to what has happened to the world because of Adam's sin. The world as a system is anti-God being influenced by the God of this world. We read that in 2 Corinthians 4. Satan has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. The unbelieving make up the opposition of, to God's will in the world. That's, what, that's who is the opposition to God's will in the world. It's the unbelieving. And we, all, we know from what Ron taught weeks ago that Satan influences that, and Satan does have influence over unbelievers. The world hates God, and the world hates those who would work to accomplish His will in the world. This in my observation, I don't know if you guys feel the same way, and maybe it's, you're, I don't think anybody here is as old as I am, but, um, you know, this seems more evident now than it ever has before, that the world hates those who would work to accomplish His will in this world. We're commanded to be thinking followers of Christ. Remember, God has given us, given us His will in His Word in principles, we're commanded to use our intellect, our minds, our thinking to love Him, putting His principles into practical action in our lives. How to apply, knowing, you know, putting into practical action, how to apply the principles of His Word. By the enablement of His indwelling, we have the Holy Spirit to enable us to understand His Word, to put it into action, to know how to, to meditate on it, to evaluate and examine ourselves, and to put it into use in all circumstances and relational interactions. Remember John 14, 21, Jesus says, He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. We're going to, if we love 
Christ. If we love God, we're going to keep His commandments. Now, as a reminder, when we're told to do or not do something in Scripture, uh, it's not intended to be optional so that we can live a better life. And I think oftentimes as we read the Word, we're reading it and we're saying, God's telling me that this is a good way for me to live. Well, uh, God has made His will very clear to us, for us. Uh, We are to prove ourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God, above reproach, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom we appear as lights in the world, Philippians 2.15. We are commanded to do these things. They're not just suggestions. Now, some commands in that regard, you know, with that in mind, some commands regarding the world, and this is just pulled out of all the scripture that I made a long list of, have nothing to do or reject with, with worldly fables. Regard what has been entrusted, another one, guard what has been entrusted to you, avoiding worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge. So what they call knowledge, a lot of times we need to just completely reject it and avoid it. Avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness. Deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. Keep oneself unstained by the world. Escape the corruption that is in the world by lust. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. And lastly, do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. And that's not the totality of them. That's just a sampling of what's in the Word. I would challenge, I think, the, I think just searching for world, I think there was 220-something results, and I think all but one page of it was in the New Testament. So there's a lot, the Word has a lot to say about the world, and the New Testament has a lot more than the Old Testament to say about the world. And when you look at the Old Testament, generally you see the world referred to, and it's referring to the earthly part of the world, the creation. And then you go in the New Testament, and that's when you're seeing, watch out for the worldly system. Watch out for this anti-God world that is against you and is against Christ and His will. So there's a lot to be said there. So I would, you know, I would recommend going through that if that's something you want to, if you want to look into the world. But as I said, as you look through there, you're going to see it's hard to discern sometimes exactly what it's talking about, but it all refers, I mean, to specifically what it's talking about, but it all refers to the same big idea. So how does this play out in the world? What are the things that are deception? What are the things that we need to watch out for? Of whom does the world consist according to Scripture? Well, the world consists of unbelievers. What's the defining characteristic of unbelievers? Well, obviously, they are not saved, but uh, they don't care about God's will. That's the defining characteristic of unbelievers. Why don't unbelievers care about God's will? Because they have a sinful nature that is essentially self-focused and self-determined. 
So they're looking out for number one, essentially. They're looking out for what they want. They're not caring about what God wants, which generally is going to tell them to be selfless and not self-determined. So the world, the third of our enemies, along with the devil and the flesh, influences us toward displeasing God because it is made up of people and the circumstances and relationships brought about by those people whose interests and pursuits are foundationally for self-gain and rooted in pride. So we are tempted to be drawn. Our flesh causes us to be tempted. We talked about that last week. That Our flesh causes us to be drawn to what the world does in its self, self-pursuit and in its sinful nature. Remember, the flesh is a remnant of the sinful nature remaining in us, so we're drawn to that. Something to keep in mind, and it may sound good, or at least might sound okay to live according, it might sound okay to live according to what we want. You know, I want to do what I want to do. You know, that sounds, that sounds good, and it may not sound all that harmful. But Scripture tells us at least twice the end of living this way is death. Proverbs 14.12 and Proverbs 16.25, so just two and a half chapters later or something, says the exact same thing. There is a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Now, you know when Scripture repeats something, it's not because the Holy Spirit made a typo, and it's not because He forgot that He mentioned it and He accidentally wrote it again. Uh, You know, when it says something more than once, it's because we need to read it more than once. We need to see it again. And so there's a real point being made there. If we go a couple chapters later, Proverbs 28, 26, he who trusts in his own heart is a fool, but he who walks wisely will be delivered. And isn't that the pervasive message of the world? Follow, and I have a feeling as we go on with these resources and ideas and philosophies that we're going to talk about, we're probably going to come back to this more than once. Uh, But that's what we hear from the world. Follow your heart. Do what you want. Do what feels good. Do whatever makes you happy. Some of you may be aware that do as thou wilt shall be the whole of the law is the theme of the Satanic Bible. I mean, it sounds exactly right. We just, he who trusts his own heart is a fool. Follow your heart. Do what you want. The things that we're hearing exactly what the satanic bible the theme of it is that sounds like a really easy tie to see regarding the influence of satan himself as ron taught weeks ago on the world which influences us in our flesh as we allow it to so we see satan's influence in that way so i wanted to address uh, a little bit about psychology because this is where we're going with this. We're going to, we're, a lot of what we're going to end up covering coming up in the weeks to come is going to have something to do with philosophy, the philosophies of the world, or it's going to end up having something to do with psychology. Um, so what is psychology? Well, I don't have a really good definition for that, but when we started this series watching Richard Gans, and he was in the field, he had a doctorate in, in psychology, he was practicing psychology, uh, his take at that time, even when he was in school to get there, uh, was that it was pretty much unhelpful nonsense. But it didn't matter to him because there was a big paycheck at the end, 
right? He knew he could make a big paycheck for just sitting there listening to people's problems. Uh, remember he said that he would sit there and it was the thing to do to stroke your beard? And then he said he didn't have a beard, he had long hair, so he'd play with his hair instead. <laughs> so, um, but he realized early on that it wasn't worth anything, that there wasn't any true answers in it. Psychology is essentially, in just sort of boiling it down, it's the world's or man's ideas of how man relates to the world around him, apart from God's Word, apart from thinking it through with God's Word, apart from God, really. And there are thousands of methods and ideas, but there's no ultimate authority. So everything comes down to opinion and testing. And we all know that testing can always show exactly what we want it to show. Right? You can get to anything you want by testing. Um, so when is it most common that this aspect of worldly influence and thinking needs to be countered biblically. So when are we going to encounter this that we're going to need to counter it biblically? Well, uh, one thing that's very often is you're going to hear or you're going to read or you're going to see charts and statistics and results of studies and so-called science regarding human reactions and feelings. So we regularly, you guys hear all the time on the news, uh, studies show or science says and so that's when your ears need to perk up and say, okay, is this a believer talking? Well, if it's not, then you need to really have it on high alert. But even if it is somebody that you think would be a believer talking, still need to be on high alert because you still need to pay attention to whether it lines up with the Word or not. And that's, that's the priority. And I think oftentimes we don't think about the Word as being the priority. We're not thinking these things through through the lens of Scripture. We're not evaluating, you know, they say science, it sounds pretty innocuous. It sounds pretty harmless when they say, the studies say, but if they're trying to prove something, they can prove it. If you've ever taken a statistics class or maybe a class on marketing, you've probably discovered that a person who knows what they are doing can make data tell whatever story they wanted to tell. You can make data say whatever you want it to say if you present it in a certain way or if you do the test in a certain way. And people who have agendas to sway public opinion are motivated to present whatever is necessary to do that. Without evaluating these things by the lens of Scripture, it's difficult to think rightly about what we hear and see. In our flesh, it all sounds good. It all sounds reasonable um, because it's often presented as the way people will be happy by meeting their own needs. That's how they present it. They're going to present it as, if you want to do well in life, if you want things to go well for you, if you want to have these things, then studies say this is what you do. But when you think about it logically, a godless person has no incentive to tell the truth. They really don't. Um, the ends will always justify the means. The person without a desire to please God and glorify Him has no reason to constrain himself by truth. At least the true truth, as Francis Schaeffer would say. One of the most freeing concepts to grasp as we deal with unbelievers one of the most freeing things to think through and to realize is that unbelievers are going to do what unbelievers do. They are going to sin. That's what unbelievers do. They are going to sin against us. That's what unbelievers do. Um, we have no expectation that they will do that which is pleasing to God. So when they sin against us, 
we just, our response is, I wouldn't expect anything other than that. And we think of them as being an unbeliever who needs Christ, not about getting angry about the fact that they sinned against us. That's what we should be expecting. Are there well-meaning people in psychology? Are there people who use psychology with a desire to please God and help others? Sure, of course there are. The difficulty is that psychology is not God-centered. It's man-centered. And it's often at odds with Scripture. So you you center something on man and what he wants, it's going to be at odds with what the Word says. So when the two are mixed, it more often comes out heavy on the psychology side because psychology is geared to make people feel like victims rather than self-sacrificial servants of the loving and sovereign God. So rather than telling people, you need to submit to God in this, and you need to love that person regardless of what they did to you, it's going to make them feel like a victim, and they're justified in being angry or whatever it is. God's Word is the manual by which we live. He's the Creator. He wrote the code. He engineered and fine-tuned the universe and all that exists. So He's the one we go to for answers. Psalm 24, 1, The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. Psalm 100, verse 3, Know that the Lord Himself is God. It is He who has made us and not we ourselves. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. His Word tells us how to live in His creation. You know, in any other thing that we buy at the store or that's engineered or car, whatever, something goes wrong with it, what do we do? We go back to the owner, the one that created it. We go back to the engineer. We go back to the manual that they put out to say, okay, what do I do with this? I need to troubleshoot this. That's where I'm going to find the answers. So why do we so often try and think through problems ourselves or go to other people, godless people, to find answers for what comes into our life? Remember, God didn't just design the world and let it spin. He's sovereign over everything that's going on in our life. So we have very little control over the relationships and the circumstances that we get into. I mean, the people and the circumstances are oftentimes, most of the time, not under our control. But God has ordained it. So we need to go to His Word to know how best to deal with these things, not think it through on our own or what do we have inside ourselves, but, or going to other people who are godless as well. So the person, so further person strays from God's will. Wait, I skipped over here. Um, so the worldly person often reacts according to Proverbs 19.3. The foolishness of man ruins his way and his heart rages against the Lord. So he sins, he messes up his life, and who does he get mad at? God, who he sinned against in the first place. Man's comprehension and ability to think is twisted and tainted due to sin. In theological terms, this is known as the noetic effect of sin. Essentially, sin makes us dumber. It just makes us irrational. Sin makes us less capable of thinking rationally. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, Proverbs tells us. There's no true wisdom apart from God's Word. So the further a person strays from God's will and pursues the rationale of the world, the more foolish he or she behaves and thinks. You know, We've mentioned it before, but Chris defined, essentially defined love as sacrificially serving others for the purpose of them becoming more like Jesus. And that's not what the world is going to tell you, right? Love's not a feeling. Love's not self-seeking. Love is not proud. 
Remember 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8? Love is patient, love is kind, it's not jealous, does not brag, is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly, does not seek its own, does not provoke, does not take into account of wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. These are action descriptors. They, love does things. It's not a feeling or something that we fall into. So where else has the world, what else do we need to be mindful of about the world? The world has redefined truth as something that is either subjective or irrelevant altogether. God, the concept of God, has been redefined by the worldly. Any, any concept of God, apart from how He has revealed Himself in His Word, is idolatry. But we see this a lot, and we hear it a lot, and I have a feeling these things are going to come up again also. A God that loves but doesn't exercise His justice is not the God of the Bible. A God that reacts to events rather than being sovereign over all that occurs is not the God of the Bible. A God who is caught off guard or needs to be informed of anything is not the God of the Bible. A God who is incapable of accomplishing exactly what he, a God who is incapable of accomplishing exactly what he wills is not the God of the Bible. So anything that we hear that lines up with those false ideas, we need to be dismissing it completely. But it takes discernment to to hear and to read and to understand when that's being presented. Because oftentimes it's not just going to be stated, God doesn't know what He's doing. It's not going to be stated, God didn't know this was going to happen. It's not, it's not going to be stated that way. We're going to have to pay attention and be discerning as we take in ideas like these. So I wanted to finish by reading a long passage because I gave you a break at the beginning, so we're going to do a really long one at the end. Uh, but Psalm 73, 2 through 28. This is going to be long, um, but I'll, I'll try and go through it fairly quickly here. Psalm 73, As for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the way. So he's saying, I almost fell. I was thinking about this wrongly. I almost stumbled. My steps almost slipped because he was thinking, he was envious of the arrogant and he saw the prosperity of the wicked for there are no pains in their death and their body is fat. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. The garment of violence covers them. Their eye bulges from fatness. The imaginations of their heart run riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They have set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue parades through the earth. Therefore, his people return to this place and waters of abundance are drunk by them. They say, how does God know? And is there knowledge with the most high? Behold, these are the wicked and always at ease. They have increased in wealth. Surely in vain, I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. For I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. If I had said, I speak thus, behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight until I came into the sanctuary of God. Then I perceived their end. 
Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden tears, like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand. With your counsel, you guide me and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord my refuge that I may tell of all your works. See, hear what he's saying there is that he's looking at the world and he's envious of their ease. He's envious of what they have going. They're pursuing what they want. They're pursuing the worldly things. They're pursuing wealth and the wisdom of the world and all these things. And he is looking at that and he's going, God, why am I living this life of self-sacrifice when they have it easy and they're just pursuing their own thing? But then he realizes that God is good to him in so many ways and that God ultimately is going to destroy the wicked and the worldly. Um, so lastly, um, and I'm not going to... I'm not going to read any of this, but I'm just going to recommend it. And it'll be in the notes. Um, I'll attach the notes to the lesson on the sermons page on the website. Um, But Nicholas Ellen had... So this past week, um, we had a new granddaughter. Um, But we also also heard about a tragic death of our old pastor in California. He had a car accident, uh, a solo car accident. And... um, we also heard about in a family friend, not a direct friend of ours, but a friend of our family's, that took his own life. And so as I was looking at this, looking for stuff, as I was looking for resources for this lesson, um, I generally go to the ACBC site because there's generally stuff there that's useful. Because what are they doing? They're applying the word to life, so it makes sense. So I went on there, I looked for the same type of terms, world, sin, temptation, those kind of things. And one of the articles that came up was actually a conference message from a few years ago, Nicholas Allen, and uh, title message is, if you want to look at it before you get the notes, but it's Understanding and Dealing with Suicide. And um, it's, it's a very good article. I was hoping to have time to read some of this. Um, but uh, I would recommend looking at it because as I was thinking about the things that went on this week, I was thinking about how is it that we should be relating to people so that these things don't happen, right? Not the car crash, I'm not, but the, somebody taking their life. And so how do we relate to somebody and how do we allow, help them to see the world according to the word in a way that they don't get to that despairing point? And so he addresses it very well. He essentially puts it into two camps. He says that there's the one camp that gets completely overwhelmed by the world, the things going on around them, and their expectations of what the world should be giving them, and not seeing it from a biblical perspective. And then the second person is the one who's dealing with guilt and sin. With Essentially, it's pressures from without. And then the second one is the one that has pressures from without and also has pressures from within in unrepentant sin and guilt that they're dealing with 
And so it leads them to want to just end it all. So anyway, very good article. I recommend uh, checking it out. If you want me to send you the link directly before then, I'll do it. Um, maybe I'll just send it out on Planning Center or something. So uh, anyway, let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word and that um, we can trust your word as it applies to our lives, that you have made it possible for us to know how to please you, that you have made salvation known to us in your word, that you have drawn us to yourself, and that you have granted us uh, grace and salvation. And we thank you for um, not leaving us with just that, but giving us the, uh, your Holy Spirit, indwelling us, that we might apply your word to all the things going on in our lives, that we can look at the world through the lens of your word, and that we can really understand um, the truth of it, and that we can avoid uh, worldly chatter, that we can get, escape from uh, the nonsense that's out there and be true to your word instead. And I pray that you'd help us to do that more uh, effectively this week, that you would enable us to examine ourselves, to consider how the world might be influencing us in a, in a way that we ought not to be letting it, and that we would be um, mindfully um, considering how your word applies to all that's going on around us. In Jesus' name, amen.